That was such good banter, and we got none of it. Uh, it's, you know, you gotta have the good banter so you can have the good show. Tell me about these listeners you met at the JB meetup. I met a couple listeners. Well, I met, there was, there was probably over 100 people that came out to the meetup. But I met a couple of uh, Bitcoin DadPod listeners that are, have been enjoying the show. One of them has been a listener of mine since it's probably 2012-ish, 2013 time frame and picked up some Bitcoin when we first started talking about it. And I say some, I think they picked up a few. Oh, wow. I think they're doing all right. Flashing the Rolexes on the wrist? Uh, no, nothing so quite like out there, but uh, one sort of tasteful Bitcoin pin, you know, lapel pin kind of thing. Oh, okay. And... Uh, he had to introduce himself as, uh, hey, I'm a Bitcoin guy. I just want to let you know. I just want to thank you. When you first talked about Bitcoin, I bought some, and that's worked out well for me. <laughs> and yeah. he just had this big smile on his face. Uh-huh. That's the smile of driving a Lamborghini to the meetup, maybe? Right. Yeah. One of the, there was a couple. There were some really wild vehicles that showed up. As you'd expect, there's a good handful of different electric vehicles, you know, from Teslas to more eclectic electric vehicles. And then my favorite was like a 45-year-old GMC RV. They're really special. They're really a spe- for for a brief period of time in the 70s. GMC decided they were going to build an RV to aircraft standards. And they built something really special with a really low center of gravity and a really cool front-wheel drive setup, which is not common in an RV, which means no axle, so the floor could be really low. Oh, I see. Yeah, it was a super, and you know, there's not a lot around anymore, because, right, they were built in the 70s, they did it for like four or five, six years, and then they stopped doing it. And this listener had one, and it was all teched out with a server rack in there. No way. Yeah, the whole thing. And like he, a half rack, a 6U? Six, six yep, yep. Uh, I, guess, I guess he bought it from a guy that used it for security surveillance, and they had rigs in there for monitoring cameras and stuff. So they what picked it find. up for like four grand or something like that. And now they're road tripping around in this thing as they rebuild it, also fans of Bitcoin, uh, a lot of people at the meetup just sort of low-key talked about Bitcoin like it's just a foregone conclusion in everyday life. You know, when you have the conversation online on Twitter or something like that, or Telegram, it really feels like it's a real mix of people who think it's a total scam that don't believe in it and people who understand it. Like, it's, it's, it, was a really, it was a really different experience where people were just really cool and wanted to talk about it. Nobody was being weird about it. it was, we had some good chats. That's so great to hear, because one thing that has been bugging me has been how many members of the Linux community seem to be hostile to Bitcoin, specifically Jim Salter in the last 2.5 admins. That was really embarrassing, Jim. Was, did he? I haven't heard it. So I'm very sympathetic. Do you have a summary? Like Essentially, it. Jim's son, I think, came home with a school textbook that was a really cringe, crappy textbook, and it kind of goes pro-Bitcoin at the end, but it isn't even a very good explanation of Bitcoin's value proposition or what it does. <laughs> okay. So it's just a bad textbook in general. But then this sets Jim off and he just starts going on about Bitcoin energy FUD and comparing uh, Bitcoin yeah. to Visa and saying, look, Bitcoin uses all this energy and Visa processes more transactions, so it's clearly garbage. And Jim is wrong because you're comparing apples and oranges. Bitcoin transactions are more similar to, say, central bank clearing transactions between central banks, except they're better because now it turns out that central banks can get frozen too. And so comparing it to Visa is really silly. On the subject of people acting like, yeah, Bitcoin's a foregone conclusion, let's talk about other stuff. That's sort of why I wanted to talk to you and have this podcast, because I honestly got bored with Bitcoin before we started diving into the more nitty gritty. 
honestly, I think Bitcoin gets really, really interesting when it achieves some double-digit percentage of global usage adoption. I think Bitcoin will be really fun when it's, you know, one, two million dollars Bitcoin. Then we'll really discover what we can do with it. But until then, it's just kind of going to be a little boring, maybe. It's interesting you say that. I was pretty bored with Bitcoin from like 2013, 2014 to like 2020. Uh, I just sort of kept my eye on it. I mean, I've always had the Bitcoin price in my plasma system tray. So it's not like I've tuned it out. Shill for plasma desktop right there. <laughs> That's right. Big plasma shill over here. Big fan. We both are. I noticed you're running it over there too. Maybe you're not as much of a fan, but you're running it. Uh, this is actually XFCA. What? Oh, okay. I thought you used plasma. No. Jeez, you're one of those guys. Hold on. I used plasma on Garuda. Yeah. Because you recommended it. Uh huh. Boy, that's turned up to 11. I know. My (laughs) wife walked by and she said, That. I want that. That's that's the future. It does look very high tech. There's so many things I could respond to in there, but just to the boring part. I, I also thought it was pretty boring until I started seeing that the entire economic situation in the world was shifting. And I felt like, oh, okay, it's time to start paying attention again. Things are really about to change, and Bitcoin's going to have a role in this at some point. And so then I started getting really interested again. And now I'd say I'm probably more interested, interested than I'd ever have been. And some of those initial trends that got me back into it again have only continued and only accelerated, especially in, I'd say, the last three to four months. But to the Linux community, because I think that's a point we probably shouldn't pass over, as a member of the Linux community where we really just focus on what's going on in that community. I didn't appreciate what tunnel vision we had created, where I think a lot of people in the Linux community don't think of Bitcoin as free software. I I think they've come to define free software as stuff that runs on Linux and stuff that works for Linux. Like they don't really think of all of the other things outside that. Maybe they consider the BSDs. But Bitcoin runs on Linux. Yeah, yeah. I, I What I'm saying is I think that... There's certain things in the Linux community that are given a benefit of the doubt when they're, when they're seen as like a free software project for the Linux community. When it's something that just runs on Linux, that's, yeah, that's a dime a dozen these days. And then specifically, I think the energy FUD is the most challenging and the biggest problem that Bitcoin faces in both corporate and public opinion right now. And I think it is a particularly hard one to resolve because the complexities of how the energy market works are so far beyond the average person's understanding. I know I've said this before, but they don't even realize they are ignorant because it seems like a really freaking simple equation. Bitcoin miner use more power, more power use bad. Like that, that seems obvious on its face. And to disagree with that, you'd have to be a lunatic who's fooling himself, right? But that's not actually the case because of how the energy market is structured. I totally ran into that early. I was actually at a, I think, a Python meetup, and I foolishly mentioned Bitcoin, and a guy who was very confidently ignorant shouted at me about coal in China and not being able to breathe and whatnot. So I, I hear you there, because I feel like concern about climate change is real. It's, clear, it's clearly legitimate. And here we have all these people talking about this thing that's simultaneously financial speculation and uses energy. And I guess from a certain point of view, you've got to be thinking, what the hell are you doing? Right. And they don't, they don't ascribe value to Bitcoin. 
and I don't and I and I don't say this to be like, oh, we're so smart, we figured it out, but they also probably are not generally aware of the depth of the problems the traditional Western financial systems face. Right. So they have been living for the last 40 years in a position of financial privilege. And so they don't see a system that needs to be replaced. If I go to McDonald's and I swipe my debit card, as far as I'm concerned, that transaction is instant. And I got my burger right away. I didn't have to convert anything. I didn't have a taxable event. It seems like that technology works. I'm not sure what the problem is. I can check the balance instantly on my phone. Everything's good, right? That's the average consumer's view. This magic internet money comes along, and it just looks like it's money for nothing that has no real use. And so all it is is downside to them. And I don't mean to keep going on about this energy stuff, but the reality is, is I have friends, plural, who have chosen not to have children because they don't want to increase their climate impact. That's how serious they take this. Well, I don't want to be critical of other people's intensely personal decisions. At the same time, I think that they did the math wrong on that, to be honest. Because, first of all, as we're going to show later in this episode, which we haven't introduced yet. Should I do that now? Sure, we can okay. do that now. So. I'm back. <laughs> back. Back again. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, episode 10, recorded on Friday, April 15th, 2022. I'm the Bitcoin Dad, and I am here after a week of absence with Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Oh, no, sit down. Sit down. Congratulations. Two episodes while I'm gone on your own. Not an easy thing to do. Well done, sir. Thank you. It was very difficult. You, you left a big gap that I tried to fill. I don't think I succeeded fully. But what can I say? You run a global media empire and you were out hobnobbing and meet and greeting with the, the fans, the hordes in <laughs> yep, Raleigh, yep, North yep. Carolina, having a fancy time, I it hope. Was, yeah. Quite fancy, I'd say. It was really enjoyable. Would do again. Would recommend five out of five stars. Fantastic. So what I was going to say is that people who are very concerned about climate change and energy usage, the thing is, these are clearly serious topics. but Using data, we can actually explore how poorly we as people understand the world. And so, for example, I share a YouGov poll in the show notes about how Americans, and I'm sorry for our non-American, non-United States citizen listeners, how American-focused our, our content is. There's just a lot of data from America, so it, it makes it easy. There's this great YouGov poll where people are polled about questions and then you see the true answer. For example, one question is, how many Americans have a household income over $1 million? People responded, yeah, probably around 20%. Well, the, the true answer is 0%. <laughs> wow. And, you know, I honestly would have said around 20% just simply because you look around, you see all the homes that cost more than a million dollars. So these people must make more than a million dollars, right? <laughs> not at all. That's zero percent. That's not how. Yeah. I mean, so it's point zero zero one okay. or something. But this is a great example of common narratives or, you know, things that we just sort of assume about the world. We think we understand. And then you go to find the actual data and it's zero percent is a lot different than 20 percent. <laughs> right. But then if we also focus on this income distribution question, so how many Americans have a household income? over $50,000. And Americans say 50%. Well, the true answer is 62%. But think about that. That means 38% of Americans have a household income under $50,000, which is just doesn't cut it today with inflation. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. 
And also, 34% of Americans have a household income over $100,000. So basically, America has this really weird distribution, which you just wouldn't guess because it's, it's so weird. You know, people would imagine some kind of smooth curve of, of wealth accumulation. But basically, you've got this huge spike, billionaires and the super wealthy, and then it flattens down. And then you have another, this, this kind of, this bulge around 100K. And then like 38% of the population is just zero. It doesn't seem particularly sustainable. And how does this relate to energy? Well, what I would say is energy usage is really complicated and people use tons and tons of energy every day and they just don't think about it and they're not changing their lives to reduce that consumption. And frankly, it probably wouldn't make a big difference if they did. What are the real things that drive energy production and use worldwide? I would say it's probably heavy industry, steel, mining, stuff involving concrete and metals, constructing big things. Now, no one's saying we should stop doing that because wind farms involve a lot of steel and metal. So clearly there's value in using energy to build things. I think this narrative of energy use is bad is probably wrong. Rather, producing carbon, heating up the atmosphere and trashing the environment is bad. So how do we reduce and sequester these negative externalities? I think that's the the real question. And you can't just say, well, you know, maybe it would be tough, but we need to just go to a low energy society and we can do that transition. Well, you know, right now there's a war in Eastern Europe and Ukraine is experiencing what a low energy society looks like and it's chaos. No one wants that. And I don't think you can ask anyone to go through that because if you look at countries that don't emit a lot of carbon emissions, they're generally super poor. Well, and they're not going to voluntarily say, okay, well, we will sequester our growth. We will discontinue our expansion. Even though you all in the West got this, you got access to cheap energy. Now that it's 2022, we'll just collectively all decide that we're not going to use cheap energy and we'll intentionally stunt our own economic growth. Maybe if someone proposed, okay, well, we'll send 50% of the stuff we have in America to the third world, would, would that be enough to convince you to use cleaner, less efficient, less productive forms of energy? Hey, they might say yes then. I just don't see anyone in the U.S. saying, you know what? We should give 50% of what we made with dirty fossil fuels to the developing world so they use clean fuels. That, that doesn't seem to be something people want to do. Right. I think the other thing in this energy discussion here is the recency bias that plays in people's minds when they think about this. They, they look at the world as it is today, and they look at Bitcoin mining as a net additive not really thinking about a world where we've transitioned to all electric vehicles, where we've transitioned to all electric heat. Just those two things alone, not even transitioning other appliances, not even changing other industries and how they consume fuels, but just electric heating and electric cars for consumers is going to dramatically change the type of power and the amount of power that we use. And so this conversation around how we power the grid has a much bigger impact and ramification than just Bitcoin mining. And so we start to look at something that needs to be solved that's going to affect us as time goes on, especially now. The White House has made it a a priority to push electric vehicles. Uh, President Biden's actually coming to Seattle next week on Earth Day to promote a transition to electric cars as a response to increased oil prices. Is he going to drive an electric car here? Uh, and I don't think he no, and I don't think he's going to fly an electric plane either. Hmm. Yeah. So we have a we have an obvious problem, and we have to transition to a cleaner grid because it's not really the consumption of power, but the kind of power that is being supplied. 
And so we have to be able to transition to something that is powered by renewables, by cleaner energy at the source. You start to think, well, that's been a problem for the last 25, 30 years. We've known this for a while. That's not new information. It seems like it just never happens. In fact, while I was traveling, I didn't, so I didn't grab the link. I apologize. But while I was traveling, I saw a story that a group of oil companies and traditional energy companies have gotten together to torpedo even more clean energy legislation. And the reason they're doing it is because they claim it's going to cost them too much money. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt their poor little profits. And, you know, they just they can't make anything less than historical profits. It'd just be so, so sad. And so they formed this industry, industry group to torpedo those initiatives. And that's always been the case. And until we can incentivize them financially to make these transitions, they're not going to do it. Bitcoin mining plays a critical role in incentivizing these companies to utilize renewable sources because it creates a consistent dynamic demand that can either be spun up or spun down that can monetize these renewable sources in a way that makes them enough money that they'll actually transition to them. That's thing number one. Thing number two that I think is not really brought into this energy conversation is the methane off-gas capturing that Bitcoin mining is uniquely capable of doing because you can take a container to a remote oil pump field in Texas and you could capture all of that methane gas that is currently being off-gassed into the atmosphere at a, at a nearly 100% conversion rate from methane into electricity and you can Bitcoin mine off of that generating money for that energy company and taking methane out of the atmosphere. Right, and basically the problem Chris is getting at is that Cleaning up methane emissions has always been a cost for energy producers, and methane has a much higher warming coefficient than CO2. So Bitcoin mining is a way to basically incentivize converting very warming C uh, methane into slightly warming CO2. So it's a net benefit for the environment, and it's an example of how you don't have to punish anybody, you don't even have to pass any rules. This technology just makes it so that if you're polluting, you're wasting, and no one likes to waste money. If it just solved that issue alone, it'd be worth advocating for. But because it also helps incentivize renewable power sources, it can make wind farms that did not make money, it can make them profitable, it can make solar farms that had to be spun down because they couldn't store the power, it can make those profitable, it can change the game for places like North Dakota that have all of these fields where they've just been off-gassing and they couldn't properly capture it, which is going to create jobs, right? You see the knock-on effects that I'm talking about? It incentivizes power companies to go to renewables. It takes methane out of the atmosphere. It creates jobs at these mining companies. And it creates a viable product in the energy market that can be actually bought and sold on exchanges. It really changes our potential trajectory in adopting renewable energy if we embrace Bitcoin mining. And last but not least, Bitcoin mining is never going to go away. So it just seems like it's an absolutely logical, practical decision to work with it and work with the industry instead of constantly fight it. And so when people like Mr. Salter or others proclaim that it's boiling the oceans, it's a simpleton way to look at the problem. And I don't mean any disrespect because honestly, who would understand all of this unless they've gone and actually researched it? So it's not really Jim's fault or anybody else. It's when you look at the, when you look at the problem on the surface, it seems like a very simple thing. Increased demand is bad. 
But what you're actually advocating for is no increase in power usage for any new technological innovation. It'd be like if tomorrow we invented something brand new that improves society, but because it used more energy, we were not going to use it. That's clearly the wrong direction to go. So ultimately, I know we kind of talk about this a lot, but this actually seems like one of the largest headwinds facing Bitcoin adoption right now. Well, we'll see what the Biden executive order reports come back with, because there are a bunch of questions about the energy use of Bitcoin in there. And actually, I think that we can write in and share our opinion on that. So maybe we should do we that. We probably should. Yeah, we should do that. Let's, uh, let's leave a link so that if listeners want to send a, a note to the Biden administration, we can kind of raise these issues and maybe uh, link to some sources so that they can do a bit of reading themselves. I also would really appreciate, maybe not a super lengthy, but a, a rebuttal to the points that we've raised because I haven't heard a convincing counter argument to what we just brought up when it comes to the methane capture and the incentivizing renewables. I'd love to hear a rebuttal, rebuttal to that so I can refine the argument. And additionally, on top of that, I'd like to hear how else we're going to get there. How else, how, how else will we incentivize the grid's transition to renewables? I'm not talking about consumers and retail. I'm talking about industry. How else are we going to incentivize the power industrial complex to move to renewables unless it's a way that they can make bank doing it? And if you, I, I'd love to know another way. I, I frankly haven't heard one, and I followed the energy debate for a while. And actually, I have a relative who works in the energy industry at the intersection of government and energy. And we had a very interesting conversation, which I won't go into details because he didn't tell me I could talk about it. But the gist of it was we got a real problem because people are very anti-nuclear and I just don't know how things are going to work out in the next 20 years if we don't really double down on nuclear. So I actually brought up Bitcoin mining to him and he was like, Bitcoin, I've heard of that. Yeah, I get I get salty about it because it's a it is we can have our cake and we can eat it too in this scenario. And what an exciting opportunity to not only have a system that generates financial freedom and the more mining that occurs, the secure the more secure the network is, but we can also transition to renewables with this technology. And I say that because the mining industry on the whole, especially in the United States, is extremely incentivized to do this. They get that they need to look as green as possible, so they have to actually follow through. If they want to be considered environmentally friendly, they've got to take some of these things on, and they're willing to do it. The industry is willing to work with everyone here. It's such an opportunity. And so that's why, that's why I think it is worth addressing on the show, especially when people we respect in our community bring up the issue. And we just have to acknowledge that Everybody can't be experts on everything. Right. And sorry to punch down on you, Jim. Honestly, I don't think you'll mind. You seem to have pretty thick skin. Hope I was right about that. I had two other articles that I linked to after this YouGov poll, which kind of reveals how Americans don't have a good sense of the reality they live in. Can I, can I just touch on one more before you transition there? Sure. This one is a great example. Listener, how many Americans do you think, what is the percentage of Americans that have flown on an airplane. Let me answer that. Got to be 80%. Right? I mean, I just was at SeaTac. I would think it's nearly 100%. It was so crowded. Only 59% of Americans have ever flown on a plane. Good Lord. 
just shows you like how off we can be about the size and the way industries work. I got to say, the more I look at the data, the more America looks like a third world country. <laughs> you know, you're kind of right. We'll put a link in the notes if you want to see what he's talking about. But we could go through all the categories. It's, it's not exactly a rosy picture it paints. I linked to two more articles. One is a chart of the largest holders of Bitcoin. And one is a chart of sort of an aggregate holders of U.S. equities. And what I want to get at is that I have heard a criticism of Bitcoin in the past that it's controlled by whales and, you know, basically to buy Bitcoin is, is essentially enriching these early Bitcoiners. And I think that this data reveals that that's not the case, because while there are some large Bitcoin holders, if you sum up all of their holdings, they own maybe 7% of the Bitcoin, maybe. Whereas if you look at the U.S. stock market, the numbers are just shocking. It's got to be... Oh, you're right. Oh, my God. So the top 10% of America owns 84% of the stocks. 84%, the top 10%. So that means that the bottom 90% only owns 16% of investment assets. Essentially, we're coming out of a world of intense wealth concentration, and we're moving to a new world of frankly, less wealth concentration. So I think that's a generally positive trend. Unfortunately, there are negative trends too, which I think this one is very negative. The Biden administration has nominated a former Ripple advisor as a top Fed regulator. I mean, neither one of us are Ripple fans. You know, you hate to see anyone associated with Ripple get any kind of legitimacy, but that was one of the things that Ripple had going for it is it had people who circulate in these circles. This guy is a former Obama staffer as well. So this fellow's name is Barr, and he's been nominated for the Fed's vice chairman for supervision. This is a position that supervises banks and other financial companies that fall under the Fed's jurisdiction. This would be a huge win for Ripple, which just to circle back, is, I would say, one of cryptocurrency's most successful scams. It's a company that colluded with holders to pump and dump the price to essentially transfer value from Ripple holders to the Ripple company, selling their worthless token so that they could essentially fund their operations. And I've actually taken the time to look at the underlying technology of the Ripple blockchain, and it's absolute garbage. They don't have a consensus mechanism. Essentially, the consensus mechanism is, what does the Ripple master node do? Okay, that's consensus. Is this better or worse than traditional finance? Probably the same. It seems like a, yeah, a straight up the same. I mean, totally it, all the downsides. Well, it may be worse because at least with traditional banking, you can kind of fire up your servers and if you have the right licenses, you can connect to their network. But with Ripple, you'd need all those licenses and then Ripple would have to mail you a bunch of hard drives with, I don't know, like a petabyte of data or something crazy because their blockchain is just a loaded mess. Well, they, they specifically, I believe, just thought they would work with large financial institutions that could afford stuff like that. And it was always going to be like a banker's deal kind of thing. And that's why the Ripple value proposition, the meme that they sold to retail investors was so ridiculous because the idea was, Ripple, all the banks are going to have to use it. And so you get to front run the banks. I mean, what a dumb idea. Like if it was so useful, they'd just create another one and not have to buy it from retail. Right. Plebs. Right. The White House in the announcement said that he, uh, Barr, has spent his career protecting consumers. <laughs> it's like we live in opposite world. Right. That's opposite world right there. Yeah. I think about this as, I mean, the very first thing that came to my mind, and I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, is how is this going to affect the ongoing considerations for 
Bitcoin, and digital asset regulations? This is one of the biggest questions of the next year, maybe the next two years, really. Let's be 19 months. How is Bitcoin regulation going to play out? Because we either come out on the other end with a legitimate digital asset that, you know, all of a sudden we start to see ETFs approved and Wall Street gets in, or we come out with something horrendously crippled. And I'm curious to know what you think Barr's potential nomination. I mean, he hasn't been approved yet. He's still got to make it through a Senate confirmation. But um, this is a guy that has a history here, and he's going to be in the Treasury during this very important formation of regulation. Well, he'll be at the Fed, and the Fed doesn't necessarily directly regulate crypto assets. Oh, he's going to be. The, oh, you're right. So he's going to be the Fed vice chairman. So that would be more of a okay. an SEC or CFTC. So SEC is Security and Exchange Commission, based in New York, which regulates stocks. So you're thinking generally. he probably won't have anything really to do with it other than maybe his opinion. The fact that he's in the running means that he talks to people in the administration, and that's bad. But we knew that already because regulated financial players, they like altcoins. They like Web3 crappy token centralized blockchains because they're similar to the traditional financial system. They, they don't like Bitcoin because Bitcoin essentially decentralizes power consensus. We've, we ran a big experiment in the block size war and we, we tested the idea, do miners control Bitcoin? And we learned, no, they don't. The control of Bitcoin is this messy, decentralized consensus process that involves miners, developers, and node operators. This is too complicated and anarchistic for traditional finance people in general, I think. And so I see a lot of people from traditional finance get very excited about DeFi and Ethereum. Essentially, it, it looks like a startup. It looks like a financial startup with Vitalik as the founder. Yeah, now there's an actual tech stock. Right. And of course, Chris is referring to the fact that many analysts will tell you that Bitcoin trades like a tech stock. And I wouldn't disagree. It generally goes up when people are risk on and it goes down when people are risk off. At the same time, that doesn't mean it's a tech stock. It just means that many people think it is. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you'd know that we disagree. We think that long term, it's going to act as something different a sort of base asset for a new world, potentially. Yeah. It eventually will be seen as a safe haven. It's just not there yet. And honestly, in terms of financial assets at 13 years old, it's too young to be seen that way. It's not realistic to think a 13-year-old asset like this would be seen as some safe haven for wealth. Uh, and it's just going to take time. Those things take time as generations change. But we're getting there. And another bit of Wall Street news is that BlackRock is finally making a digital asset move. They're getting really deep into USD coin, USDC, which is a stable coin that is issued on Ethereum, Solana, Algorand, Stellar, Avalanche, and Flow, basically all of the crappy utility chains. Yeah, backed by Coinbase and Circle. You've speculated privately that you think perhaps instead of a CBDC, I'm not sure if that's true, but you think this is essentially going to, USDC is going to become like the blessed stable coin. That has been something I've said because if you think about the way that current finance works, it's sort of peak surveillance capitalism 
and USDC is just another iteration of surveillance capitalism. The fact that it moves on a permissionless ledger like Ethereum, it means that it's a little bit more useful than, say, your credit card because it's difficult to prevent you from like making a transaction. So if you want to buy some drugs or something naughty or make a naughty donation to a cause that the payment processor wouldn't agree with, they can't initially block you from making that transaction, but they could perhaps add an address to a blacklist. So they could sort of try, I, I think they could do certain things to demonetize those coins, but it, they would have to take extra steps. But what I'm getting at is that essentially legacy finance is stuck in kind of a legacy permissioned surveillance capitalist model. So it's actually not a huge leap for the U.S. digital dollar to be administered by a huge financial company like BlackRock. I mean, the U.S. government is kind of really into giving sweetheart deals to companies so that they can provide what should be a public good. I'm thinking of medicine in the U.S. or education. I mean, there are a lot of for-profit universities still. Yeah, or health. Yeah. Um, USDC has a pretty good reputation too. So you'd be leveraging something that's already well-established and accepted just about everywhere. And I feel like perhaps what moved BlackRock to actually make this large purchase and, and, and put some real money into this is since the war in Ukraine broke out, stablecoin usage has skyrocketed. It's up, well, skyrocketed. I think it's up something pretty ridiculous. They're kind of positioning themselves with a pretty big stake in this thing to maybe be the ones that ultimately are running this. And so I can see what you're saying is, yeah, they essentially become a de facto private issuer of stablecoins. And the argument right now seems to be, and this came up at the Bitcoin 2022 conference as well, is with the war in Ukraine now, it's like stablecoins are here. They've arrived. We're using them. They're, they are now being even accepted by more and more Bitcoin maxis as something that's going to be around. And now it's just a matter of which flavor are we going to go with, and BlackRock here is making a bet. Sure. And of course, this brings up the eCash Act, which I've men mentioned twice already. And eCash is Rohan Gray's bill that he wrote that essentially authorizes the Treasury to issue a private digital cash that would have kind of a hardware device component. My sense from Rohan's writing, what he said is that he's concerned that if you leave this to a private company, it'll be like we described. It'll be this huge sweetheart deal where some financial elite group gets to administer a CBDC or a whatever, a stable coin. For a second there, I thought you were going to describe the Federal Reserve. Are we just trading one evil for another? Well, the Federal Reserve is considered to be a U.S. public institution. It's not really. It's a weird hybrid because it's technically owned by the banks that it regulates. At the same time, the Federal Reserve chairperson is appointed by the president. So I think confirmed in the Senate, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's, but it's, for the most part, it's the wolves are running the hen house and you just, you know, you hire a chief hen, you know? Oh, completely. There's a revolving door between the Federal Reserve and Wall Street, the SEC and Wall Street, the CFTC and Wall Street. So there's essentially, we're, we're in a state of regulatory capture. It's not really possible for these regulators to do things that the entities they regulate would not really approve of because they can be personally punished. Because once your time at the Fed is over, don't you want to get a cushy job making a couple million a year just to give a speech every now and then? Of course you do. So why would you 
shake the tree. No one, no one will do that. So yeah, everybody ends up kicking the can for a lot of stuff. So BlackRock's making probably a smart move because it seems stable coins are all the rage right now. Right. And I think the important takeaway from this piece of news is if you still have someone in your life who's saying that all this cryptocurrency stuff is nonsense and it's going to go away, just send them this article because it's not. BlackRock is doing it. Right. I mean, <laughs> Goldman Sachs is doing it, right? JP Morgan is doing it. The genie's not going back in the bottle. It's, it's out. No, I mean, once you get to these names, they are working under an operating assumption that all of this is going forward. They don't do this kind of thing until they've talked to their buddies in the federal government. (laughs) They don't do this until they know it's a bet that's going to pay off. And we're not talking like they're throwing a couple of hundred thousand at it. We're talking millions and billions. I think billions. Who cares about millions, right? So the last couple articles or news items are going to be a little depressing, but we're going to end on a high note. So in a move surprising nobody, Lebanon has confiscated the foreign currency accounts of Lebanese citizens. So for our U.S. listeners who might not know how this works, in many countries around the world, when you go to a bank, you can have an account in local currency, which is probably the majority of bank accounts, but you can also have a U.S. dollar denominated bank account. Sort of like a savings account? Yeah, savings account, you know, foreign currency account, hard currency account. I've heard it described by some listeners as they keep spending money in the local currency and then money that they want to hold on to for more than a month or two, they put it in U.S. dollars. Because generally speaking, inflation is much higher outside of the United States because the U- if you think of it visually, the U.S. is like the center of the global financial system. It's a little more stable. And as you move away, you're in these higher layers of the financial system that are sort of less stable and inflating faster. So Lebanon has had super high inflation for a long time. I don't know if it was technically hyperinflation, but it was certainly double-digit inflation. And so that country has been falling apart. And it was really just a matter of time before your uh, U.S. dollar bank accounts have been seized. And in recent memory, the U.S. dollar bank accounts of Russians have been seized lately in Russia. It's hard to wrap my head around that. It's like one morning you wake up and your bank account is just gone. Well, it's more like you get a notice and it says, oh, hey, uh, we've helped you out by taking that $100 you had with us and selling it into the local currency. So, so they generally credit your local currency account with the, the local currency value of that. Okay. But what they really do is, let's say the black market rate is 10,000 Lebanese, Lebanese pounds to the dollar. They'll only give you like 1,000. So they, they give you a token amount to sort of say, hey, we didn't steal your money, but they stole your money. Right, right. And in a lot of cases, they have like the official conversion rate, right? And then they have, like you were saying, the black market conversion rate. Right. And, and the, the black if, market is the true rate. Right. Because that's, you go <laughs> to the street, you need to do a deal, that's the real price you pay. Yeah. Because with the official rate, you go to the bank and you're like, hey, I'd like the official rate, please. And they're like, oh, great. Okay. So there are uh, 90 forms you need to fill out and a letter from your congressman. And you're like, what? How could I ever get that? And the answer is you can't. Because they don't really have the dollars. They don't really want to give you the dollars. So the goal here is what? To capture people into the current system so they can't escape the Lebanese financial system into U.S. dollars? Like, What do you think, what does this, what does this gain them? How does this help them combat their ever-escalating inflation? 
So this always happens in moments of economic, political, and currency collapse, and generally those things all happen together, I think, throughout history. So I'm thinking of Weimar, I'm thinking of uh, Greece. This happened in Greece and Cyprus in uh, 2008. And generally what's happened is the banks literally don't have the dollars. They literally could not give you those dollars. So they sort of need to wipe you out and give you whatever the local currency is. And often the government is directly confiscating those dollars because they need them to, I don't know, do government spending in hard currency or maybe to service government debt obligations. There could be many things that are happening on the backside. I think what the takeaway is, is that in times of crisis, in times of financial system stress, the people who will bear the cost are the people who have no recourse. So if you hold Bitcoin on your own wallet and you hold your own keys, you will not bear the cost because it's so difficult to make you. Everyone else who couldn't be bothered, who found it daunting, who just hasn't made the leap, they're the ones who will touch the hot stove on that occasion. And they're the ones who will have to go through the pain of learning the cost of trusting in third parties in a system that's fundamentally untrustworthy, I think. The sort of game plan theory here is that these smaller countries begin to do this one by one, right? It's sort of all of the weaker currencies are going to begin to collapse. And we are actually seeing that theory play out. That's what we're witnessing here. Does this continue? Do we start to, do we start to see other countries start making moves like this as inflation in the West and other places just continues to grow? Well, also Sri Lanka defaulted on their government debt. And I think they also probably seized hard currency deposits too. But yeah, generally in financial crises, you see the problems at the periphery of the world economy first, because those are the least quote unquote sovereign economies. They're very dependent on external flows, on external monies. So it's likely that we'll see more problems in smaller, more developing countries as these energy market problems, these supply chain problems, and the financial contagion that they potentially create spreads. Yeah, especially if food starts running tight. You have the knock-on effects of high energy prices that affect the price of everything while you're also pushing against already hard-to-control, if maybe not out-of-control inflation. Definitely a time to have your own keys. Now, in more bad news, things in El Salvador don't seem to be going very well right now. If you will recall, I've been quite critical of the El Salvador Bitcoin experiment. I think that many Bitcoiners were excited about it because we had a sovereign country adopting Bitcoin, yay. But it wasn't really done in a sort of ground up, grassroots way. There, there is a grassroots Bitcoin experiment in El Salvador called Bitcoin Beach. And essentially this town called El Zante got a donation of eight Bitcoin a couple years ago with the stipulation that they kind of use it locally. And so they created a little Bitcoin circular economy that seems kind of interesting. At the same time, it's not all sunshines and roses. So in El Zante, I link to a podcast that's very skeptical of Bitcoin in general. And I know I'm not supposed to give away the milk and share other people's podcasts, but eh, give it a give it a listen. It's interesting to hear people who just fundamentally believe different things, you know. So they talk to these two El Salvadorians who are definitely not fans of Bukele. In fact, they've been, uh, I think one of them was arrested without a warrant at some point for tweeting about Bitcoin in El Salvador. So essentially, you kind of get a, ta a flavor for the authoritarian Bukele regime, and it's not pretty. Bukele is uh, he's not the sort of politician who would think we would all feel comfortable if he were in charge of our 
environment. But uh, essentially, it sounds like the implementation of Bitcoin in El Salvador via the Chivo wallet has been so opaque and so technically flawed that just a lot of people don't seem to be using it, which is too bad. Because if the Chivo wallet worked better, and if there had been more education, El Salvadorian migrant workers would be able to use it to send money home, and they'd be able to send a lot more money home and be provide a lot more support for their family. Unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily seem to be happening. Yeah, yeah, I'm mixed on that, right? So it's happening more than it was before. So that seems like a positive thing. But you're right. Uh, the initial technical implementation, no surprise really, was botched. And I believe I read they are rolling out a different wallet now. They've they've like commissioned a new app to be created, but I don't really know what the status or progress of it is. It's a it's a challenging history there. It's really complex. They've had a real bad run with leadership. And as a result, the entire country has been repressed. And so you're kind of going from zero to 100 with this, right? Because they barely have a cellular infrastructure. They barely have working cell phones. Most of them don't have computers. And so you're kind of going from really archaic payment systems where people have to like go pay their power bill in person and go stand in line and like ride the bus to get there to pay a bill. You're going from that to pay by phone. And I just don't know how culturally you pull that off. It seems like you're going to have, it's really going to be a thing that early adopters embrace. That's a good point. I think that it's easy for me to be overcritical because eh, maybe that's how I was raised. For me, the red flags are the fact that Bukele got this idea from his brother. And I've noticed in the coverage of Bukele, he, he's the El Salvadorian president, that his family shows up a lot in liaising between him and the Bitcoin community. And that's a red flag right there because there's not any transparency as to how much Bitcoin El Salvador bought, who is managing it, how is it managed. And then you have these like unelected family members of the president showing up and kind of they're like really intimately aware of this policy. You know, if they're holding those keys, they could literally get on a plane and have El Salvador's treasury in a trezor in their pocket or something. That's very, very worrying. So I don't think that Bitcoin is really a good thing to have in an environment without good checks and balances because it's self-sovereign, self-custodied funds that someone has to custody. So it's not like the traditional banking system. If you want to steal a billion dollars from the government out of the traditional banking system, you have to have a lot of people work with you on that. With a, with a Bitcoin private key, you don't. So that's a little... It could walk. It could walk. It, and you probably it's saw, worrying. You saw reports and who knows what the details are, who knows how they store it, what they do with it. But you probably saw the reports where he jokingly said, perhaps semi-serious, that he buys the Bitcoin from his phone. It may have been a joke. But I mean, also inside every joke is also a joke. So I'll just take him at his word on that. That's a real red flag. It does seem like the number one threat with this entire thing is he walks with the Bitcoin. Um, I know he's, he is very popular in the Bitcoin community. I agree with you, though. I think we should be skeptical of him and his administration, like we should be with all politicians. Uh, but specifically, something like this, just because of the history of that country. And I, I initially, I should say, was very on board. But as time has gone on, and, you know, some of the crackdown stuff happening right now with him and gangs, sort of the fact that he had to bail from the Bitcoin conference, those kinds of things are also concerning to me. The Bitcoin bond hasn't happened. A lot of stuff has been pushed out. They claim that's because they don't think the market's right right now. But they're kind of right. I mean, when they planned that Bitcoin bond, it was during mid-2021 when the market was just on fire. And now, like, if, if you... If you're taking a pragmatic, realistic look at the world economy, it doesn't seem like a great time to launch a bond, does it? That's a good point. At the same time, if you don't build volatility into your financial plan, 
then it was a terrible financial plan. So <laughs> anyway, yep. we don't have to harp on this too much longer. We'll we'll find out because the U.S. Senate actually is putting together a report on El Salvador's Bitcoin adoption. I think with kind of a, a paranoid, perhaps rightly so, view of... Yeah, it seems like kind of a hostile... Oh my God, how is this going to affect the dominance of the U.S. dollar? I mean, I would say, you know what, go ahead and be scared. This is something to worry about if you're a U.S. dollar maximalist. Yeah, they do seem to be concerned, and they're talking about spheres of influence and and all of that kind of stuff. Um, if you're in Central America, you do not want to hear about the U.S. saying spheres of influence. The next thing you know, you've got CIA-trained gorillas burning down your house. Yep, it's not a good thing. No, but we do have some good news, though. Oh, do tell. So I did mention the Bitcoin conference and everybody was expecting, was it Jack Muller, is that his last name, from Strike to announce a partnership with Apple. And we didn't get that. But the rumor at the time was, is that Apple Pay would be integrated into Strike. There was a series of tweets by Jack that kind of implied this. And uh, there was some Bitcoin icons that showed up in an iOS development build that sort of, then everybody went, well, maybe this is really happening. Uh, of course, that build hasn't shipped and Jack had nothing to announce in that regard. But it is interesting that Apple has Bitcoin icons in their iOS build. Uh, but what Jack Muller did announce for Strike is pretty big. He announced three integrations with companies in the point of sale business, uh, the biggest being NCR. They are the world's largest point of sale device creator. And Blackhawk Network, which is one of the absolute largest U.S. payment companies and also has the largest point of sale partnerships network. Something like uh, four, 400,000 active merchants. I mean, we're talking like a lot of users. But the idea here with the, with the uh, Shopify integration is that any website, even I think starting now, that uses the Shopify online card transaction integration can now process payments using the Lightning Network. It's pretty slick. And uh, Muller did a, a demonstration where he went into CVS and he bought, he, he did a separate transaction for each item he bought. And he bought some beer, some pretzels, and some peanuts or something like that. And what Jack did that I thought was actually kind of neat is he used three separate Lightning wallets for each transaction and none of them were strike. He used other people's apps that are on the Lightning Network to pay for stuff at CVS using one of these NCR terminals. And, uh, you know, God, he must have practiced so many it's times, so like right? It's so like TikTok style too, because, you know, Jack's kind of a young guy, so that's his, that's his style. But yeah, I bet he did. But it was neat to see the, the message he delivers there. And why I like this announcement a lot is, again, the Lightning Network is an open network like SMTP. And so once these people are on Lightning, even if it was Strike that brought them onto the Lightning Network, once these businesses are on Lightning, you can use any Lightning app to pay for it. You don't have to use Strike. And when we were on the uh, meetup trip and we were buying food for like, you know, barbecue and stuff like that, we constantly were running into how to split this thing. And we constantly were running into app compatibility issues. You know, I wanted to use Strike, but maybe Alex wanted to use Cash and, you know, maybe somebody else wanted to use Apple Pay. And so none of these apps were compatible with each other. But when they all join the Lightning Network, I could use the Strike app and Alex can use the Cash app and we can still send funds to each other, even though they're competing companies. And so that's why when you see NCR and Blackhawk and Shopify get on here through Strike, I think this is just great news. Yeah, and I think it's great for a completely different reason. I hadn't even thought about the compatibility issues. For me, what is really cool about this is that if Lightning is incorporated as a payment option, I imagine that these three terminal providers, this has to cover a huge percentage of American businesses, right? Yeah, yeah, quite I large. Mean, 
maybe 50%, possibly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it means now you don't need to sell your Bitcoin. You can buy something with it. And I think that's really cool because the traditional choke point in the financial system is this fiat on and off ramp. So if you can just directly sell your Bitcoin, that's really neat. It means it might mean privacy benefits because you don't have to go through an exchange. Perhaps this integration will incorporate KYC. I don't know at this point. But the fact that you have this integration, if it, if it works out and people start using Lightning, they may eventually become aware of the BTC Pay Server project, which allows businesses or individuals to accept cryptocurrency for payments very seamlessly. Yeah. And if we have a kind of highly compatible back-end payment infrastructure that doesn't re require trusted third parties to administer, even though this is a trusted service that Jack is uh, providing. That's just such a huge positive. It means that people can engage in financial networks without permission and at lower cost than using the traditional rails. Well, and I would mention too, it is a huge win for the unbanked. And I, I don't think we give that enough consideration because we're banked individuals and most people in the West are. But actually, if we go by that infographic we were talking about earlier, it'd be interesting to know what the percentage of U.S. citizens are that don't have a bank account. Or my children, you know, my, my teenage son, um, could he, could, he doesn't have a checking account, but he could have, you know, $100 in Lightning on his phone. And now he can go to the store and buy himself something. It's oh, he, ginormous. He, he won't have it for long if he keeps <laughs> no, falling for those ro no, Robux yeah, scams. But the other thing, and this is just incidental, that's kind of fun about this from a consumer standpoint and just a joy compared to cash is when Bitcoin is, is rallying, when it's having a good time. I have, I have used the, like, something like the Cash app to buy Bitcoin at the beginning of the month to pay for like, uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm mooch docking somewhere in my RV and I want to pay for power that month and I pay them at the end of the month, I'll buy it at the beginning of the month. It'll go up a few bucks, and I'll keep the difference. I'm going to make that transaction anyways. So why not? Well, this only really works when it's rallying, but why not buy it? And then I can pay her using Strike when I'm ready. Uh, you know, maybe I just pocketed $7. Build a little financial speculation into your everyday life. That's I... right. I, I mean, it could also go the other way. But I, it's, a fun, it's, it's fun to have access to these tools. And it's, I feel like, you know, as an adult, if that's what I want to do this month, that's what I'm, I should have the ability to do that. And the more nice thing about the Strike app, and this is probably the end of the Lightning talk, is the Strike app allows you to participate in the Lightning network completely automatically. You only transact in your local currency. You're not buying and converting. You're doing, it's doing all of that on the back end for you automatically. And that's just so powerful. It's, it's using the power of Bitcoin and the settlement and the consensus network and Lightning and you're only interfacing with your local currency. And it's just so, it's so smooth. So is, is Strike holding a stable coin and somehow buying and selling stable coins to Lightning to conduct these transactions? They are converting it to Bitcoin or SATs, you know, on the fly and then sending it over, net, uh, over Lightning. And then on the other end, depending on what app you're using, if you're using Strike on the other end, they're just immer immediately selling and converting it to USD. I see. And so the reason that they're not directly sending a stablecoin is because then the stablecoin would need to clear on some altcoin blockchain and they'd have to pay gas fees and they'd have to whatever. Yeah. And wait. because they're doing it so instantly, there's really no, no volatility you're being exposed to there. Right. Because it's instantaneous in a second or so. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty slick. Very cool. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure on computers you have lying around or even in the cloud if you want to learn those skills. 
host your own media server, control your home IoT devices with a Raspberry Pi, and get endless excuses to buy more electronic toys. The Stealth-hosted show will give you ideas, guidance, and a fun community to experiment with running way too many computers at home or in the cloud. Check it out at selfhosted.show or search for Self-Hosted Show in your podcast app. How's that? Am I becoming a veteran ad reader? I like that. I want to go listen to that show now. You don't have to. You record it oh, weekly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Weekly? Is it weekly? Uh, every other week. Bi-weekly? Mm-hmm. Is that bi-weekly? I just say twice a month. Right. That's more understandable. Fortnightly? Fortnightly. I like that. Because bi-weekly to me means twice a week. Right. Right. That so, would be a lot of work. A fortnightly show. <laughs> Our next section is Bitcoin education. I'm trying to keep this up so we always have some educational topic that we can kind of get into. I think it's easy to get caught up in the, in the news because the news is digestible. And sometimes talking about Bitcoin stuff can seem a little bit moon mathy or, or complicated. But hopefully by bringing it up every week, we sort of expose everyone to some of the underlying concepts and problems and solutions. And that makes everyone feel a bit more confident and involved in the Bitcoin tech stack. That's always a good thing. Today's linked article is a Twitter thread and a series of Bitcoin Stack Exchange articles. And the thread is by Merch. Now, Merch is a Lightning developer at Chaincode Labs, I want to say. Yes, you are correct. He is an engineer at Chaincode Labs. And this thread is about a potential Bitcoin upgrade called CISA, Cross Input Signature Aggregation. And there are two articles here. You know, what is it? What does it require? What does it do? And essentially, the idea is that what if we could take multiple inputs in a single transaction and approve them all with a single signature? And this sounds sort of obvious, but the idea is essentially in Bitcoin, we have UTXOs. So the Bitcoin in your wallet is not an account. Your wallet, when it shows you an amount of Bitcoin, what it's doing is it's adding up all the UTXOs in your wallet. So a UTXO is an unspent transaction output. And you could think of Bitcoins as literal coins. But instead of traditional physical currency that comes in set denominations, a UTXO is whatever it happens to be. So you'd look into your Bitcoin wallet and you'd have a five Bitcoin UTXO, a one Bitcoin UTXO, a 0.000397 Bitcoin UTXO. They'd be all different amounts. Now, this is problematic because sometimes when you make a transaction, you need to send several UTXOs into the transaction to get the right amount. What cross-input signature aggregation does is when you send in multiple UTXOs to a transaction, Instead of having to sign every UTXO with the, the signature from that address, you can actually combine all of these signatures into a single master signature, which is, I think this is a, a taproot, um, taproot hack, and just leave little placeholders for the signatures next to the individual UTXOs. And why would you want to do this? Well, essentially, it makes transactions smaller. So you can, you know, if you have a, Merch has done some math to figure out the sort of weight, the size of transactions. And so if you have one input, you end up with 230 weight units per transaction. But if you have 100 inputs, you get 167 weights per input. So, you you know, you get kind of a 40% 40% savings. And because you get to aggregate all of these signatures, there might be a privacy uh, hack here. Ah, okay. So it's a little technical. And I think you can hear from my 
timid explanation that I haven't fully grokked this, but I would suggest giving it a read, and if it sparks an interest, read further. It's a, it's a real rabbit hole. That does sound like a fun topic to brush up on. Look at that. We'll have a link to that and the thread in the notes. Okay, so now we are on to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch with us at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Or a boost. Well, frankly, everyone uses boost these days, which is so great. That is. They're so much fun to read. and They're the best part of the job. You know, as a podcaster. Oh, yeah. They're the best part of the job. They are really fun. So three days ago, Turquoise Fox using the Breeze Wallace. <laughs> what a great uh, moniker, Turquoise Fox. People are so much better at coming up with user handles than I am. I, that might be a auto-generated one. Because I remember Purple Bear from Breeze Wallet. Okay. There, there's this like color and an uh-huh. animal. You're right. I need whatever they're using to generate names. I need that. But Turquoise Fox sounds like, remember Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Yeah. It reminds me, you know, my kids, again, with the Robux, they're constantly trading these animals and they have like the way they differentiate them is you can have a purple fox and a blue fox and a turquoise fox to like somehow different. So, so that's like in the terms of listeners, we have maybe red fox out there and turquoise fox. <laughs> Actually, my friend's son got cheated in Robux recently. What? Yeah. It's rampant. So he, someone approached him and wanted to trade him one of his animals for like a more powerful animal. And they did the trade, but then he realized that he'd given away a better animal and received a much worse animal. Yeah, they do this. I was just talking to my son last night. Like these, there are le- legitimate, like professional players, and they stock up in a way that makes them look like a super incentivizing trade. And then they sneak in a lower quality trade and walk away with your better stuff. Right. If only they were using a, a multi sig or something, you know, maybe a, an escrow. I was going to say, it sounds like a Cordana trader or something. <laughs> it's a soul trader. <laughs> maybe the advice in Roblox is let them trade first. Always say, look, you have to give it to me first because I know I'm trustworthy, but I don't know if you're trustworthy. They need like a Roblox escrow where, you know, everybody puts their, their items and their money in and then you get to evaluate and then both parties can say accept. That's our next business idea. Right? We're giving it away for free. You Dang could it. be the Robux, Roblox yeah. escrow service. Somebody out there, figure that out and then just give us like a 20% cut. Just send us 20% in boost. Yeah, we'll promote you on the podcast to all of our under 12 listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's going to be huge. <laughs> but to get to Turquoise Fox's message, did you try walletsrecovery.org to get the derivation correct? This is a really helpful note. So this is from episode six, Touching Hot Stoves, when Chris and I were sharing our worst Bitcoin accidents. And walletsrecovery.org is a website that gives you information on Bitcoin wallets and the derivation paths they use to generate private keys. And so this is a very useful resource if you have lost a Bitcoin seed or you screwed it up somehow. Sometimes wallets use a non-standard derivation path and knowing this information can help you recover recover your funds. Unfortunately, in my case, Turquoise Fox, thank you so much for that recommendation. I had looked at that, and I think that I did at least two things wrong, maybe three things. And so I've tried many different permutations, but nothing's uh, nothing's really worked. So I, I don't know if there's any walking that back. Ooh, that's rough. Yeah, well, you know, you touch the hot stove, you learn. You definitely learn. Our next boost is from Sir Lurksalot, and this is quite a boost. Yeah. Should I say the amount or is that tasteless? You know, I don't know. I've always wondered. I go back and forth. I feel like in a way it's maybe nice as a listener to know what other people are boosting 
But then also, like, maybe people want that to be private. Basically, Sir Lurkslot sends a really kind and supportive Gen- message. So I'm just going to read the end. Much love, brother. And so, yeah, right back at you. Right on. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I've also gotten a boost from Castomatic. And I get these Castomatic boosts, and there's never a message with them. Ah, that's somebody who's streaming sats as they listen. So, oh. some, so this is such a cool idea with, the, with this whole thing is because it's so effortless to send transactions over Lightning. By the way, this is one of, when you have a system like Lightning, this is one of the things it enables. And so the listener can say, as I'm listening every few minutes, send this amount of sats. So maybe they have like every 20 minutes of listen time, they send 500 sats or 1,000 sats or something like that. And the app just does it in the background as they listen, and it just deducts it from the wallet. And you, they can always go in there and change it and turn it off or whatever. Oh, okay. So when I stream sats to you and I'm listening to Jupiter broadcasting shows, you can see what I'm streaming? Like I see it come in, but there's no message. Oh, okay. But do you know who it's from? I think it depends on the app. Some apps are better about the username thing like than others. Okay, cool. So after that Castomatic stream, we have a boost from Crypto Kyle with two Ks. So it's kind of almost like Kryptonite. And he was listening to Maximal Critique, which was my last episode, which was very critique And he mentioned super hot, high-speed steel. Best quote from today's episode. Perhaps an, epi- <laughs> perhaps an episode for the common man on wallet control and centralized versus decentralized advantages and disadvantages of self-custody, i.e. one wallet, multiple wallets, a wallet for every day, smiley face. Oh, that's an idea. Maybe a wallet-focused episode. Yeah, I, we, we were just talking about our wallet setups in the pre-show. We were. I could see that being a segment. I mean, I feel like it's so easy to get overwhelmed if you mention more than two wallets. And, you know, just because we do it it's one way doesn't mean it's the right way necessarily. Also, there's like the operational security aspect of it. Like, right. how if, much do we want to say and expose our, you know, our personal investments? You can get pretty paranoid here. If yeah. we... If we tell you how we do it, there might be someone with a $5 wrench taking notes like, oh, okay, I'll uh, look out for that. Although I kind of feel like if you listen to the past 10 episodes, you can kind of piece it together, right? (laughs) We kind of, because we talk about best practices in a lot of cases. But if you have to listen to the past 10 episodes, would you be willing to hit us with a $5 wrench? I don't know. I think you have to. Well, at least you've earned it. (laughs) Big fan of the show. Bam. (laughs) (laughs) We'll think about that. That would be... Interesting, because, I mean, I love Bitcoin wallets. They're so ingenious. They do really cool things. Yes, very much so, I agree. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in that space right now. And CryptoKyle sent another boost, again, from Maximal Critique. So in this current climate, you need a catchphrase that will be an earwig to fight eCash. Oh, do tell. I propose eCash trash, as in, nah, man, I don't want any of that eCash trash. So, I mean, I'm sort of pro eCash in the sense that I think it's better than using a credit card if it existed. You mean when you say eCash, do you mean CBDC or do you mean like the actual eCash project? I mean the eCash Act because oh, right, I okay. certainly don't want any CBDC trash because a CBDC is like, here is a fiat dollar that is inflating away in value and I'm going to surveil you and perhaps apply monetary policy to you specifically if you choose to hold it. So it just seems like a nightmare. Whereas with eCash, yes, it's a fiat dollar that's inflating away in value, but no one can see what I'm doing with it, theoretically. Yeah, I like that. So as a refresher, eCash is this idea that uh, we would have a hardware device that allows us to do peer-to-peer transactions um, using an electronic cash. 
that would theoretically be private and administered by the Treasury. I am so freaking skeptical. You seem to warm up to a little bit, but I am like because it like it requires inventing a hardware device and a communications protocol and the actual currency. Like all these things have to be invented from whole cloth to make this work. I'm just so skeptical of it. Oh, I share your skepticism. At the same time, having you like to, it more than a CBDC. <laughs> well, well, look, a CBDC is. I'm going to be hyperbolic here. It's like a monetary death cult. I mean, I cannot stress how bad a CBDC is because as we were talking about before the episode, if you think that the central management of the global economy has been a disaster over the past 40 years, and I know you think it has, and I think it has too, then a CBDC is saying, you know what? More of that. Not just more of that. Let's have 100 times as much and let's do it in such a way that everyone using this is so fully trapped and KYC'd in this system that they have no way out. We are closing the gates on this maze and you can only run in this maze forever until you fall down dead because it's digital chains. A CBDC gives policymakers the ability to match all spending, all consumption, all earning with individuals and to apply profiles to that. You know, we might have a new policy that perhaps people with podcasts are not sufficiently patriotic and therefore all of their account balances are getting slashed. You know, you could do that. You could apply that policy. And if it's voted on, it would be democratic. Yeah. But it's obviously I, I, that, I horrible. I also see, uh, just to sort of play off what you just said, I just saw a couple of news articles. There's a, there's a foundation that's formed to name and shame podcasters and Twitch streamers that have any counter-narrative commentary on the war in Ukraine. So anything that is sort of counter to the official narrative, they're collecting and building a list of podcasters. We've got to be on that list then. Possibly. And that's what I'm saying. And so wouldn't it be that, it wouldn't be that much more of a stretch for like certain, it, certain businesses that wanted to demonstrate their support for Ukraine to subscribe to a list of known people who have said things against the war in Ukraine and just not process their transactions, right? You see how quickly those connections could be made. Yeah, it's a, it's really a hellish panopticon. So where does eCash come in? Look, there are a lot of challenges to eCash. And frankly, I think that my good friend Rohan may have missed a beat with it because he thinks that eCash inflation is not a problem. It's analogous to existing currency fraud or counterfeiting. And I think it's not. Because counterfeiting individual dollars is a, even if they're $100 bills, is a process constrained by physical resources. And then you have to like physically cycle them back into the economy. But if you give me an eCash device that has a maximum amount of 500 bucks on it, and I can hack that thing, even if I have to spend $10 million to do it, if I can hook that thing up to a digital payment network, which it's got to, I mean, for it to work, it has to be able to do digital remote payments. And I can just start blasting $500 out now that it's hacked and I can replenish it. I mean, that's exactly what a nation state's going to do. They have the resources to do something like that. Can I just say, <clears throat> I think what you're raising is actually a bigger deal than I, I've even considered because I think we have fallen into a self sense of a false sense of safety because of how secure Bitcoin has been. And so we have just sort of taken for granted that some sort of form of digital currency can be secure. But that is not the case. It is more likely they are going to be insecure and flawed, especially when you're creating something from whole cloth, a protocol, a currency, and a hardware device. All of that is going to be flawed. It's just how software works. It's almost an affinity scam, to be honest. But here's the thing. The eCash Act is at least a counterfoil to a CBDC. It's not the central bank. 
it's the Treasury. And frankly, the Treasury, they're not as bad. They've generally been focused on just the mechanics of getting government money so we can spend it and, you know, accepting tax receipts from the IRS and then processing those into government accounts and, you know, occasionally creating currency. It's a kind of more limited scope, more bureaucratic, more socially positive institution. Yeah, definitely transparent. It's not like the Fed where they get to have secret meetings. Right. I, this this aspect of eCash, I completely agree with you on. That's the point. I'm, I'm saying if you're going to support something, there it is. And will it actually work? Look, I'm comfortable letting them try because if the government spends a whole bunch of money trying to get secure eCash to work and it doesn't work, no skin off my back. I'm in the Bitcoin lifeboat. I am rowing away from the sinking Titanic. And if the MMT crowd is experimenting with a neutron bomb on the foredeck as it goes under, fine, I think I'm out of the blast radius, you know? That's pretty much it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, but also, at least there's another idea in government that's pro-privacy. Because yes. right now, if you don't have something to counterbalance the CBDC total surveillance state coin, then whatever the government's going to do is going to be a total surveillance option. At it least is, it is actually refreshing to see somebody advocate for privacy and advocate for building privacy into our payment system from the beginning. That's good to see. Right. I mean, it's almost a, a thought crime, to be honest, because if you read it and you see there's all this research and I mean, it's, it's a very well documented you know, piece of legislation. There's a lot of research about privacy and how that's necessary for open societies. It's all stuff that I think most of us would agree with. But thinking about that as a bill raised in the U.S. House of Representatives, you're like, but where's the AML? Where's the, you know, anti-terrorist financing? Ooh, it, it really brings to mind the fact that if we tried to invent cash today, it would be banned. And so they're trying to invent e-cash today. So it'll probably be banned, but it's a good effort, I think. Yeah, I, I guess I can... I can tolerate it because it is pushing on those things that we want to be pushed on in terms of privacy and, and secure transactions. And I like the idea of thinking about peer-to-peer -peer network transactions and that kind of stuff. So there are elements of it I can get behind, and I would not be devastated if it actually proceeded either. To Crypto Kyle's point, no, I don't want that eCash trash. But if the eCash trash fights the CBDC trash, I'll... I'll buy a, a beer and watch. The enemy of my enemy? <laughs> is my... Compromise? My Twitter friend? I don't know. And our last boost comes from DPG. Hey, Dad and Chris, love the show. I had a lot of questions for you guys, but they were all answered by the Bitcoin Q&A channel in the JB Matrix. Love that channel. I'm in there. That's awesome. Yeah, it's relatively new. We broke it off from just general discussion about news and cryptocurrencies to specific questions about Bitcoin and some altcoins. No, wait, hold on, DBG. Were you the guy I was talking to about Canadian wallets? Because that was a fun, I mean, that mm. was, it was interesting because you're like, oh, I feel like I'm being helpful, but I'm also giving you advice and I'm not 100% sure, you know? There's still some stuff we're figuring out, but that's why it's fun right now. Yeah, so I've been freeloading in the JB Matrix channels. I'm a terrible freeloader, but hey, Chris puts up with me, so it's good. You know. Every now and then you chime up with something insightful. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> don't I, give yourself I, enough credit. I try to pay my weight in lightning. But. <laughs> so DPG conti continues, uh, lots of helpful people there and highly recommended. So he's referring to the Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix channel. Right. So the server itself is colony.matrix.org. Um, probably the easiest way to figure out how to sign up would be go to linuxunplugcom slash matrix because we do have some info there. And uh, essentially, you know, with 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 Matrix, it's a lot like Slack or IRC, but it's a decentralized server base. So you kind of have to pick a server. You either host it yourself 
where you like go create an account at matrix.org and or on our server and then you can get access to everybody else's matrix server in the federation yeah i love matrix and i'm working on hosting my own instance just for my account and then perhaps eventually hosting a matrix channel but frankly I feel like the JB channels are a really good size. Like there's good conversation. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes new people come in. It's interesting. Like new people will come in and sometimes they stay, but often you'll have someone who brings in like a really bad idea. And then a whole bunch of people will be like, um, that that's a bad idea. And then they'll be like, well, thank you very much. And they slam the door and leave, you know? Yeah. And people are cool about it too. They're not like mean or hostile. They're just like, well, you might, you might be misinformed on this. And I, you know, like some people just don't take that very well. I understand that. But I find it to, to actually provoke really good conversations because I haven't really seen anybody blow up with their idea. I've seen them post countered ideas and, you know, uh, challenge assumptions. But that, that's a great, that can make for great conversation. Oh, definitely. It's really challenging sometimes, like in a good way, you know, to be challenged on your ideas. Like I often um, chat with Awesome Matt, sent us a boost the other day. And uh, he's, he's just, he's in a different place. I mean, he's like an anarchist. Cap anarcho-capitalist, which is totally cool, is a very different perspective than your your statist Bitcoin dad over here. But hey, the Bitcoin dad, he's going to be conservative, right? Yeah, he's your dad. He's your dad. You, you know, what do you expect? He's kind of a fuddly dudley. And DPG finishes. P.S. I've been going through the Plan B archives. It's a great look at BTC a decade ago. Yeah, it's wild. It's painful for me to go through it because all I hear is how bad I was back then as a as a podcaster. So plan B was Chris's original Bitcoin show a decade ago. And uh, you can really, I, you know, one thing I do think holds up is it captures the state of the conversation, what the community was worried about and the challenges we faced back then. And what is kind of inspiring when you listen to the back catalog of plan B is we talk about things that seemed impossible at the time, like decentralized exchanges in DeFi or, um, you know, like the Winklevoss twins starting a exchange that turned out to be Gemini. Like these things seemed like these these impossible things and impossible characters and moments. And, you know, you look back a decade later and we accomplished so much of what they said they were going to accomplish. It's it's very, very impressive. And it's also happening right at the very beginning of the block size wars, which is sort of what turned me off for a little bit, too. But yeah, that was a hot mess. Hard for me to listen to. But if you can stand it, you can find it. If you go on YouTube, it's pretty good. Search for Plan B, Jupiter Broadcasting. It pops up sometimes, and I generally listen through the episode because it's so funny. I almost feel like you're predicting the future frequently, but you're not sure. And I want to say, oh, hey, you got that one right. I actually, that's another reason it's painful. It's like, man, you should have just had more confidence in, in, in your convictions because you could, you'd probably be a little better off right now, buddy. But you know, when you're young, you don't really trust yourself as much. And then you get, that's actually what I like about my current age is I feel like I'm just young enough to see a revolution coming and I'm old enough to know what to do with it this time. And what you don't want to do is be on the front line. Just be a couple lines back, you know? Totally. That's like, it's still early days, right? Like if you're interested in this right now, you're still in when it's very early. When I say the front line, I mean, for example, there was a story about a gentleman who was running, I think, 50 Bitcoin ATMs out of laundromats in the New York area. And he hadn't registered with the relevant financial authorities. And he'd actually advertised it as a no KYC, I won't ask any act uh, questions kind of service to justify his very high fees, which were up to 25%. So he was, he was really raking in a lot of fiat gains there. And things didn't go so well for him. He's in jail now. Yeah, he just got busted. Yeah, he got busted. So what I'm saying is, don't be that guy. Yeah. 
Don't get don't get your arm chopped off. Play it safe, guys. You only have one life to live. Yes, so you can send boosts into the show using a podcasting 2.0 app. We like the Fountain Podcast app. The Breeze Wallet is also an option. These are available on, I think, on Android. Yep. iOS, too? Yep. Or? And on iOS, Castomatic is also pretty nice. And right now, Castomatic has a bit of a lead because it supports things like CarPlay and iCloud Sync for, like, your playlists. And it has an import function for previous podcast apps. Uh, so Castomatic is pretty nice on iOS, but Fountain is also great, and it's available on both platforms. And Fountain also has a super cool advanced clipping feature, which is a great way to share the show. Oh, right. Yeah, I've seen those clips. But they, for, for some reason, all the clips in my Fountain podcast app are, like, religious. Really? I'm like... <laughs> I've never gotten one of those, but I've gotten a lot of, like, politics. A and, lot of Old Testament stuff. I'm like, who do you think I am? You know, you could always clip your, your own and put it out there. You could always clip your own thing. Oh, gosh. Actually doing promotion. That would be could, a change. Could. Is that a show, or should we complain about decentralized exchanges, because you mentioned them? I mean, I, I feel like that's its own show. Don't you think? That is. So two men complaining about decentralized exchanges. If that's your idea of a good time, tune in next week.